You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be back worshiping with you all this week. Last week, uh, I had the honor of speaking at the Tab Church, and it was great. They're, they're such a, an encouraging and uplifting community, so that was wonderful. Of course, at the same time, one of their pastors, Pastor Jason Duick, was speaking here, and he shared a great message from Colossians 3, 1 to 4, which uh, reminded us as believers that uh, we've been raised with Christ, that the old sinful life has died, and, and our new redeemed life uh, is hidden with Christ in God. And therefore, we should set our minds on what's above, where Christ is, and not on earthly things. Of course, when, I, when we say that, that doesn't mean that we just stare into the sky and ignore everything that's happening on earth, right? Quite the opposite, actually. It actually means we're called to seek and to desire a kingdom-minded worldview so that we can display and bring Christ-like love and, holy, and a holy way of living into the world for God's glory. To say it another way, just kind of as we've been learning throughout the series in Colossians, Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God, came to restore or renew our humanity as image bearers of God, and now through him, we get to live out that new reality. Amen? Uh, But with that being said, in order to live out this new life, in Christ fully and freely, we must also ensure that we've removed anything in our lives that that might keep us from doing so. And this is where the Apostle Paul goes next in his letter to the Colossians. So, if you want to turn with me to Colossians 3, verse 5, we're going to go to verse 10. So, Colossians 3, 5 to 10. All right. Again, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Colossae. And he says to them, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the word of the Lord. So when we preach expositionally through the Bible, the thing is, you can't skip any verses, right? <laughs> it's going to be a fun one this morning. Who's looking forward to it? I am, actually. Uh, anybody here watch crime documentaries, true crime documentaries? Yeah? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm hooked on them, but, you know, but I always feel like once I start watching an episode of one, then, then I'm hooked on that episode. Like, I have to find out what happens. And I'm also just always incredibly shocked at, at um, what humans can do to each other. Um, but uh, anyways, one, one episode in particular that I watched was about a man and a woman who had recently gotten married, 
and this was in the early 1980s. And, and as I watched the episode, what, what they informed the, the viewer of was that a couple of weeks leading up to their wedding day, this, the man, the groom, had, 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 had started to not feel right. But he just shook it off, and, and they went ahead with, with the wedding and the honeymoon and all that anyway, just kind of feeling a little bit sick the whole time. But then a couple of weeks later, after they were married, this guy started to take a turn for the worse. And, and so, of course, his wife started taking care of him, making sure he was resting and, and comfortable and, and, and well-fed. Until eventually, after just days of, him nausea, of days of nausea and vomiting, she had to take him to the hospital where he was admitted for weeks. And I guess the doctors just couldn't figure out what was wrong with this guy. And they started to think, well, maybe he has some sort of debilitating disease that was slowly killing him and eating away at his body. His new wife was distraught, of course. And, and made sure to visit him multiple times a day to take care of him, often, you know, bringing him a homemade meal because that was, you know, way better than what the hospital would feed him. And, of course, he appreciated when she visited and he appreciated when, when she brought food. I mean, we've all had hospital food, right? At, um, at one point, though, the dying man mentioned to his doctor that he'd been doing a lot of yard work previous to becoming sick and thought, you know, maybe it was the herbicides that he'd been working with that had done something to him. And so, without any other options, the doctor decided to do a toxicology report. And what they found from the report was shocking, to say the least. They, they found that he had 20 times the lethal dose of arsenic in his system. The most in, in any patient in the hospital's history. 20 times the lethal dose. He should have been dead. He should have been dead. Long story short, eventually the police discovered that his wife, Blanche Taylor Moore, the one who had been ensuring her husband had his fair share of tasty meals, was actually putting arsenic in those meals. So a lethal, yeah, exactly. That, a lethal poison that was slowly destroying his body, eating away at his body. The police also later discovered that she'd previously done the same, murdered her ex-boyfriend, her previous husband, and her abusive and alcoholic father by the same method. So she had a history. Anyways, after discovering that this man was being poisoned by arsenic, the medical staff was then able to, you know, diagnose, right, and, and to eventually turn his condition around and, for lack of a better phrase, set him free from who and what was slowly killing him. Crazy story, right? Crazy true story. Why am I telling it? Well, with that knowledge, now, let me ask this hypothetical question. How, how stupid would that man have to be to request that his wife come and visit him again so that he could consume another one of her homemade meals? Pretty stupid, right? He'd have to be pretty stupid. <laughs> But, but, but he could say, you know, her food tasted so good and just was so comforting, better than this hospital food stuff. And, and besides, my wife always looked pretty good when she walked into the room. You know, he could say stuff like that. But no, he, he wouldn't. Realistically, he wouldn't say that, right? Be, because now that he knows the truth, he wouldn't care about how good his wife looked or how good the food tasted because they were both slowly killing him. And, and this is the apostle's point, the apostle Paul's point. 
in the passage we just read. As Christians who've been set free from the bondage of sin and been raised up with Christ, born again into a new way of living as image bearers of God. It would be incredibly foolish for us to again take part in that which we now know was killing us. For, for this is what sin does. This is what sin does. It slowly kills us. As the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And, and this verse isn't just referring to, to judgment day or our mortality, although that's part of it. But it's also referring to the fact that, that, that like arsenic eats away at the body, sin eats away at our humanity and our soul. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. Sin wages war against our souls. It defiles, it corrupts, it it chips away at the image-bearing nature of God in us. It's dehumanizing, in a sense. This, This is why God hates sin and evil. Quite often we view sin as like, oh, God told us we can't do these things, so we we just don't do these things. No, there's a reason. There's a purpose. This is why God hates sin and evil. And this is, as as Paul states, why his righteous wrath will eventually come upon it. And it's why he gave his son to save us from it. Not, Not because it goes against some rules that he randomly made up, but because it corrupts and destroys our true humanity. It poisons all that he created to be good and holy and image-bearing in us. Bottom line is that sin is destructive, almost almost deceptively so at times, right? Often masquerading as, as, as satisfying or as the highlight of life. But it corrupts our souls and our relationships and ultimately our relationship with God. Which means that contrary to popular belief, sinning isn't really about bad behavior. It's about dying. So again, I think, I think many of us hold on to this idea, though, that, that, that sin only gets us in trouble when God finds out about it, right? But, that, but that's not really how it works. That's not how it works at all, actually. First of all, unlike Santa Claus, God is real, and he knows what we're up to, Right? He knows, oh, sorry if anyone thought, but he knows, he knows the depths of our hearts, right? He knows the depths of our souls. In fact, he knows the worst sins we've ever committed. You can't hide that from him. And yet, he still chose to die on the cross in our place to save you and me from facing the wages of our sin, which is death. So let's never forget that God is is redemptive and full of grace and compassion for us, no matter how great our sin. And and that's the point. God doesn't want us to sin because sin destroys us. David Garland, author David Garland writes, Most people's doctrine of sin is too shallow. They think that the problem of sin resides with God. Don't push God too far or God will get you. But the result is that people tend to treat sin as something to be dreaded only if it's detected. But sin is like a cancer that grows out of control and destroys other healthy parts of ourselves. The cancer is the deadly thing, not the detection. 
Only after the cancer has been diagnosed can treatment begin. The problems come when it goes undiscovered or undetected. Like cancer, sin carries with it its own destructive force. It is something that ruins lives. It distorts and destroys our human relationships as well as our relationship with God. So again, the danger isn't bringing our sins before God. The danger is is the destructive consequence or wrath of sin itself when it goes untreated. Which is, again, why God actually invites us to repent and, and bring our sins and our sinful nature before him. Not to condemn us, but so that he can do something about it. So that he can heal us, restore us, and set us free from it. This is, again, this is the good news which, which Paul's reminding the Colossians of here, and, and all of us believers as well, that, that through faith in Jesus Christ who defeated the wages of sin and death at, at the cross in our place as our perfect sacrifice, we've now been born again. So through faith in him, we've put off the old sinful self along with all of its shame and guilt and have put on the new self in the knowledge of the image of God which means sin is no longer our master. Jesus is. We're no longer objects of of wrath, being compelled by our earthly nature and, and slowly being killed by sin. No, we're now children and heirs of the everlasting God. The truth has set us free. And so again, now that we know the truth about what was previously killing us, why would we ever take part in it again? So this is why Paul writes to the Colossian believers that they should put all these earthly desires to death. Not store them away somewhere, put them to death. Put to death the sinful idols of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and covetousness. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, lies, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul's not trying to be a killjoy here and and take away all of our fun. And and neither is he being some legalistic moral Pharisee giving us a list of bad things we're not allowed to do. No, he's lovingly ensuring that the Colossians don't revert back to who they used to be before they knew Jesus. So that they don't revert back to slavery, to worshiping at the feet of their own sinful desires. So they don't revert back to drinking poison for their souls. Which is why... Paul also writes in Galatians 5.13, he says to the Galatians, he says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. So this is the new reality for us as Christians, to be free, to be fully satisfied. To be so satisfied in Christ, in fact, that we no longer need to to indulge or consume in earthly things in order to temporarily satiate our flesh. Instead, out of the abundance of, of the grace that we've been given, we can actually humbly serve and joyfully give to others in love. And that's the thing. And that's the thing. Sin is about taking. Sin is about consuming. But righteous living is about giving. It's about serving. It's about love. And, and to that end, I, I want to highlight or bring this, this dichotomy between our sinful nature and our, and our new nature in Christ to our attention this morning. 
For if we take a closer look at, at Paul's description here of the things we're supposed to put to death and, and our new nature, we'll see that they deal with not only how we live personally, but, but actually how we, how we treat and view others. For example, if we look at the sins we're called to put to death, what are they? Again, sexual immorality, covetousness, lies, anger, greed, slander, and, and the like. What, what do they all have in common? They're all concerning the way we erroneously view or mistreat others, right? In fact, an even closer examination of these sins reveals that when we take part in them, we actually, we're, we're actually dehumanizing other people for our own selfish gain or self-centered purposes, where, where we treat other human beings like less, less than us or less than human for the sake of our own pleasure or our ego or our pride or our greed or our lust. Contrast, contrast that with the next passage in Colossians, which we haven't read yet, but, but um, when we get there, we'll see that it gives us a list of who we're called to be and how we're called to live as image bearers of God. Again, we're going to be studying that in a couple of weeks, but we'll see that it says as Christians that we're called to ha- have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and forgiving one another in love. So this is also a list that's, that's concerning the way we view and treat others. The difference, though, is that the second list tells us that to live as Christians is to view and treat other human beings as fellow image bearers of God, as equal human beings who, who are intrinsically valued and full of worth, deserving of love. Every single human being. There's no exceptions. Every single one. Because that's what we all are. We are intrinsically valued and full of worth because we're created in the image of God. And so again, righteous living is about giving and serving to affirm and uphold people's dignity and God-bearing image. But sin is about taking and consuming. It's about dehumanizing other people for selfish gain or power or whatever else. And, and dehumanizing, in, in case you didn't know, is to deprive people of human qualities or to treat someone as, as less than human, less worthy or less equal to you. And of course, we, 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 we see that in our world and in history all the time. This is what the Nazis did to the Jews during World War II. They dehumanized them. They viewed the Jewish peoples as, as subhumans, as less than them. And that's why the Nazis were able to commit such animalistic and, and brutal atrocities against them that they did. This is also what we see happening in, in the residential schools, right? Treating the in, indigenous peoples as subhuman. This is what happens in slavery, treating the slaves as subhuman. And we often think, how could these people do that? What animals? But what we don't often realize is that whenever we sin against someone, when we lie to someone, when we put down someone with hurtful words, with obscene talk, when we lust over someone, when we use someone else for our selfish pleasure, when we, when we steal or spread a rumor about them, we're doing the exact same thing. 
Not always at the same level of atrocity, but still. It's the same idea. We're treating others as if they're less than human, less than us, unworthy to be treated as image bearers of God, unworthy to be loved. No wonder Paul sums up all of these sins as idolatry because whenever we act on them, we're, we're pushing God aside and replacing pleasure or ourselves in his place, making ourselves or, or our worldly desires the God and everyone else as, as simply a resource to take from or put down because they're in our way. Pastor and author Paul David Tripp writes, if sin turns me in on myself so that all I live for is me, that's what sin does, if sin turns me in on myself so that all I live for is me, then sin in its essence is antisocial. Living for myself and the satisfaction of my selfish desires dehumanizes the people in my life. No longer are they people to me. No longer are they objects of my affection and service. No, my loved ones and friends are reduced either to vehicles to help me get what I want or to obstacles in the way of what I want. Take looking at pornography, for example. What's happening there is that the images or videos of other human beings are being reduced or objectified for one's selfish pleasure. It's dehumanizing. Those, those people in the videos or, or images are human beings created in the image of God. They're, they're, son, they're people's sons and daughters. They have thoughts and hearts and feelings and souls that need to be rescued. So regardless of, of their lifestyle or their moral choices that they've committed, they have worth and value. They need real love. And yet people dehumanize and objectivize, objectivize them. They reduce them to pieces of meat for their enjoyment. In contrast to that, when we read the Gospels, we see how Jesus forgave and, and restored prostitutes, a woman caught in adultery, and, and others like, like them. He saw them as, as, as valued and loved by God, and he gave himself up to rescue them and show them that they are image bearers of God, and he restored that in them. But again, earthly ways like sexual immorality, lust, covetousness, greed, lying, slander, being quick to anger, and, and, and all those things, they're, they're the opposite, right? That those things are all about taking. They're all about putting down, about lording over, and ultimately dehumanizing others to satisfy our sinful flesh and, desire, and, 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 and selfish desires, right? The, this has been the same story over and over since Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. When, when they rejected the one in whose image they were created in, deciding to make themselves the gods of their own morality. But what happened? They suddenly became ashamed of their own nakedness, hid themselves from one another, and even blamed the other one for their sin. They instantly dehumanized themselves and one another as soon as they turned away from God. Which, which, of course, led to thousands of years of, of uh, humans repeatedly dehumanizing other humans in violence, lust, slavery, and greed. The list goes on. 
and murder as being the ultimate one. Another, uh, uh, sorry, author uh, Daniel Darling writes, sin is what dehumanizes us. To be fully human is to enjoy bearing God's image and the joy of relationship with him. But a rejection of the image giver always results in injustice against image bearers. And violence against a fellow human is a direct assault of the authority of God. To strike at an image bearer is to strike at the one in whose image that person was created. When we hurt another human being, we're hurting God. God takes it personally. In, in our uh, liberally moral culture, which we live in today, I often hear people say that the, the line of morality for them is defined by the phrase, well, I can do whatever I want, I can do whatever makes me happy, as long as I don't hurt anyone. Have you guys heard that? As long as I don't hurt anyone. That's the moral line people say they won't cross, as long as I don't hurt anyone. And uh, it's a very self-centered way of, of approaching morality, but the line, as long as I don't hurt anyone, doesn't totally disagree. Uh, the Bible doesn't totally disagree with that statement. But the big difference, though, is how the Bible defines hurting someone or how Jesus would define hurting someone. Unlike us, we can actually see the hurt that sin caused. He, he can actually see the real damage that sin has. Not just the physical or even emotional, but the spiritual damage, the soul damage the slow but poisonous destruction to our humanity. And so while people might say, oh, what's the big deal? It's just, a, it's just a little white lie. It's just a small rumor to get back at them for talking about me. It was just a one-night stand. It's not hurting anyone. Yes. Yes, it is. Like arsenic to the soul. Again, the Bible tells us that sins are called out as sins not only because they're disobedient actions that go against God and his good created order, but because they're actions that actually destroy and devalue human be a human being's God-given worth. I'll say it again. To sin is to destroy and devalue a human being's God-given worth. Not only for the one sinning, but also for the one they're sinning against. And again, God takes that personally. And so, Paul's saying to those who've been saved and set free in Christ to put these earthly thing in, things in them to death because it's no longer who they are or how they're meant to view or treat others as image bearers of Christ. We're meant to see people as, as God sees people and to treat them as such. But the question is, how, how do we put what is earthly in us to death? How do, how do we do that? Before we get into that, though, before we answer that question, I want to first of all draw attention to the fact that, that Paul is speaking to Christians here. He's speaking to Christians. Not our neighbors, not, not unbelievers. He's speaking to us. He's calling us to look at the plank in our own eye, not anyone else's. It's, it's, it's not our job to, 
to cast condemnation or even try to, to put sin to death in somebody else's life, especially because we're unable to anyway. We can't control other people's behaviors or moral choices or their lifestyles. And sure, we can get laws changed in our country or make rules or, or enact discipline or use coercion to try to control morality in our homes or in our society, but we can't change people's hearts. We've seen Christians over history waste a lot of time trying to control people's morality. And it's gone bad every single time. And that's what the Pharisees always tried to do as well, right? They, 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 they tried to, to legalistically or coercively control the moral and religious actions of others. But it never worked. It never worked for them. They were always frustrated and angry. It never worked because, because our actions and our words are rooted in, in the state of the heart. The heart needs to be changed before our morals and our ethics ever will. And again, the only one then that can put the power and compulsion of sin to death in somebody else's heart and cause them to live according to God's moral standard is Jesus Christ and his indwelling Holy Spirit working in us and renewing us. If we want to see our society and, or, or someone we know and love start living as God intended, we need to share Jesus with them, not, not give them a list of moral or religious rules. We need to share Jesus with them. Only he can change the hearts of sinful humans because he's the only one who defeated sin. Only he can make us new and give us eternal life because he's the only one who conquered death. Only he can restore us into the fullness of the image of God that we've been created to emulate because he's the only one who is the full and perfect image of God. The good news is that, though, is that this is his desire for us. That's why Jesus came and died for us, to save us, to forgive us from sin, to set us free from the weight of our guilt and, and shame and give us new life with God. So no, how, no matter how great your sin, his grace is greater. No matter how great your sin, his grace is greater. So don't try to hide it from him. Come before him and let him heal you and forgive you and set you free. He loves you. He sees your value and he wants to restore that in you. And because he has done that in us as believers, that's why we can truly put all these earthly desires to death in our own lives. So how do we do it? Well, I'll give you three ways. There's probably more ways, but I'm just going to give you three ways really quickly. First way is by the Holy Spirit in us who leads us into truth, or more specifically by, by carrying the sword of the Spirit, as it says in Ephesians, which is the Word of God. As we wield that sword, and, and of course, the more we train ourselves in how to use it by, by being renewed in the knowledge of the Word, we can use it in prayer to, to speak God's promises and truth over any temptation or desire putting those things to death. So scripture tells us that, that God's given us a way out of every temptation. And that way out is through prayer and proclaiming the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Which leads us to the second way that we put earthly things to death. By removing temptations. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. Jesus has just finished talking about adultery and saying that even if you just think about it in your mind, you've, it's the same thing as adultery. So it's serious. And then he says in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that, that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So Jesus is speaking wisdom here, right? He's, he's not actually literally telling us to mutilate ourselves. Make that clear. But he is telling us that one of the best ways to avoid sin is to remove the temptation altogether. And, and that's going to be a personal thing for each one of us, right? So take some time to pray about what, what in your life you need to remove or, or get rid of so that you're not tempted. So you can put that temptation to death. So that's the second way. And then the, the third way we put these earthly things to death is through honest confession. Through honest confess, confession. By, by both confessing our sin or temptations to God, but also to one another. So 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's such a, a wonderful verse for all of us, right? Because nobody is perfect. None of us are Jesus. Nobody is going to be absolutely perfect in this, in this journey of renewal, of this, in this journey of growth. We still sin at times. We still give in to temptation. 1 John 1 also says that if, if we say that we don't sin, we're liars. We, we all sin sometimes. And so as I said earlier, if, if you're struggling with temptations or sin, don't, don't hide them. Don't just like hide them and sweep them under the carpet or, or sit there in shame or whatever else. No, repent and confess them to the Lord and he'll both empower you to res resist them if they're temptations and forgive you when you couldn't resist them. He's quick to forgive us. But speaking of confession, we should also be open, open to doing this with each other. And this takes a lot of humility and, and, and strength and compassion James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do this anymore? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Sadly, I think in, in many churches there's this unspoken idea that you have to come into the Sunday service with this, with this mask on, like everything's awesome, and you've never made a mistake or sinned in your life. But that's not real church. Church should be a place where we can come as we are, broken and, and, and honest. A place without judgment, where people aren't pointing their fingers, 
but rather offering a hand up to those who need it. A place where we can truly confess our sins and our temptations to one another without fear of condemnation, but, but with an expectation that, that our fellow brothers and sisters will be ready to empathize with you, because we're all sinners, and pray for you and, and remind you of Christ's unwavering grace and forgiveness. And of course, to bear that burden with you until you're restored or until you get that needed breakthrough. That's real church. That's how we put what is earthly in us to death. So with all that in mind, as we close this morning and and, and prepare our hearts for communion, I want to leave you with Psalm 32 as our closing prayer. And as I read through it, I'll invite you to examine yourself, to sit in, in God's presence and meditate on the word and, and respond to it as you feel the Holy Spirit calling you to respond to it. So let's bow our heads as we read through Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart.